X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. It's May 12th, 2020. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. Today, back in the day, on May 12th, 1963, the young and unknown Bob Dylan walked off the set of the country's highest rated variety show, The Ed Sullivan Show. The show that helped bring so much fame to the Beatles in America after the network censors rejected the song that Bob Dylan planned to perform. That song? Talkin' John Birch Paranoid Blues, a satirical talking blues number skewering the ultra-conservative John Birch Society and its tendency to see covert members of an international communist conspiracy behind every tree. I heard some footsteps by the front porch door, so I grabbed my shotgun from the floor. Snuck around the house with a huff and a hiss, saying, Hands up, you communist, it was the mailman. He punched me out. So unlike The Doors and The Rolling Stones, who changed their music to appear on Sullivan, Bob Dylan, well, he was Bob Dylan. As for the John Birch Society, Politico reported that back then they were viewed as fringe, and now their views are increasingly commonplace in today's GOP. Today on The Local, your quick six headlines, Juan Carlos Gonzalez, Metro Council, joins us with a focus on the Metro Region Homeless Services ballot measure, that's 26-210 on your ballot, and an interview with Saren Bussell, candidate for House District 33. I believe that overall, our whether we're talking to school board members or city councilors or county commissioners or folks at the state level, I think we are underestimating how liberal the electorate is. First up, it's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Counties are lining up with proposals to begin reopening. We've got 36 counties in Oregon. They are scrambling to complete their proposal to reopen businesses and public life and get approved by the governor's office. The Association of Oregon Counties said 23 counties immediately submitted. Some counties could be approved to reopen as early as Friday. That timeline is harder for more populous urban counties of the Willamette Valley, particularly around Portland. For counties in the Portland area, we're talking Multnomah, Clackamas, and Washington County primarily. Reopening is likely to come weeks later at the earliest. Your daily dose of data. In Oregon, 51 new coronavirus cases, bringing the state's known total to 3,286, and 130 people are known to have died from COVID-19. As for Washington, almost 17,000 diagnosed cases and 931 confirmed related deaths. Racial and ethnic minorities are experiencing COVID-19 disproportionately. Oregonians who are black Latino members of the Native American communities are more likely to get sick from COVID-19 than their white neighbors, and when they're infected, they are more likely to die. That's according to the Oregon Health Authority data. It matches what's happening in the rest of the country. According to the CDC, about 33% of people hospitalized with COVID-19 are black. About 13% of the country's population is black. At the Virginia Garcia Memorial Health Center in northwestern Oregon, doctors found that Latino patients were 20 times more likely to have the virus. And two-thirds of the COVID-19 cases in Multnomah County are east of 82nd Avenue, neighborhoods with higher concentrations of communities of color, and the location of a couple of nursing homes with significant outbreaks. You might get a pretty important postcard this week. Oregonians selected for a new year-long coronavirus study can expect to receive postcards in the mail starting this week. Officials at OHSU said they started mailing the postcards last night. The postcards say simply, please watch your mail for an important envelope with an invite from the Key to Oregon study. Getting one of these postcards means you've been invited to participate in the massive study, which Oregon Governor Kate Brown this month said would be a game changer. 
Participants will be asked to monitor and report symptoms on a daily basis. People who develop coronavirus symptoms will be eligible for testing. OHSU also plans to regularly provide tests up to 10,000 people without symptoms within that broader group. The idea is to find out more about the spread of the virus among those without symptoms. The methodology includes contacting about 150,000 randomly selected households with a goal to enroll 100,000 participants. The study is being structured to ensure that geographic, socioeconomic, racial, and ethnic diversity is preserved within that 100,000 group. OHSU said postcards will be mailed Monday night to selected households, and letters with additional details will be sent at a later date. If you still need to vote, here's a refresher on when and how. Oregon's primary election day, May 19th, just one week away. All Multnomah County voters should have received your ballot by now. If you don't have a ballot but believe you're currently registered, call the county elections office at 503-988-8683. I'll give it to you again, 503-988-8683. If you plan to mail your ballot this Thursday, May 14th, is the last day to ensure it will reach the elections office by election day. You don't even need a stamp this year, thanks to a new law passed by the Oregon legislature last year. Shout out to the bus project. If you still haven't voted after May 14th, your best bet is to use a ballot drop box. You can find an up-to-date list of the drop sites by going to the web address moltco.us forward slash drop sites. And you have until 8 p.m. on Monday the 19th to drop off your ballot. Shakespeare, Pickathon, and Portland City Club. Governor Kate Brown announced on Thursday that some counties would be able to reopen certain businesses as soon as May 15th, but gatherings of 25 people or more would remain off limits. And during that press conference, the governor said that large events would likely not return until late September at the earliest, meaning concerts, sporting events, and theater shows would remain dark. And since then, a few big announcements. The Oregon Shakespeare Festival has canceled the 2020 fall season. At the end of March, after the governor's original stay-at-home order, the festival announced about 400 layoffs and canceled five of the 11 productions, delaying the opening of the season until September. Now the fall productions are canceled as well. 2020 ticket holders can donate their tickets to the festival or get a voucher that can be used next year. Pickathon also is canceled and isn't offering refunds. They're offering those two other options, though. You can transfer your tickets to a future edition of the festival or gift your tickets to Pickathon LLC. The festival has established an emergency refund request form for those who are experiencing extreme hardship that is an imminent threat to your financial security. John Prine, one of the festival's headliners, passed away in April from COVID-19. Ticket holders have until June 10th to decide which option they prefer. Otherwise, the tickets will be automatically gifted back to the festival. And as the hits keep coming, the Portland City Club is laying off their staff and cutting personnel costs 90%. In an email to the community Monday night, the Board of Governors of the Portland City Club explained that before Oregon's stay-at-home order, the City Club had drawn on a line of credit to cover core expenses and had planned for a season of election events and a fundraising gala to sustain the organization into the next year. Over the last two months, though, it has become clear that those events wouldn't raise the needed revenue. And with the governor's announcement last week that large gatherings are likely to be prohibited at least through September, the City Club announced they had to make significant adjustments to the organization's operations. Members of the Board of Governors announced they would be stepping up on a volunteer basis to move the organization forward. Started during the Progressive Era 102 years ago, the City Club emerged as the home of the Governor's State of the State, the Mayor's State of the City, and has been the community's leading weekly gathering of ideas. Over the past years, the organization has worked to center equity in their topics and their work, and we root for the next 102 years. And while it might be too selfish to call it good news, the Northwest asparagus market is on the rise. For the last decade, the asparagus industry here in the Pacific Northwest has been challenged by lower-cost imports, labor shortages, and increased farming costs. 
But this year, the coronavirus has disrupted the foreign asparagus supply. Peruvian asparagus, Mexican imports are down. Cold weather is hurting the crop in Michigan and even eastern Canada. Alan Schreiber leads the Washington Asparagus Commission. This just in, there's a Washington Asparagus Commission. He says the tighter market is a little more expensive for consumers, but good news for Washington farmers. A standard 28-pound crate of U.S. asparagus for those people who eat a lot of asparagus usually goes for 50 bucks. Now, 62 bucks. And McMinimins is rehiring staff. They've rehired 700 on their way to 1,800 rehires out of 3,000 layoffs and reopening eight hotels. Portland locations, the Crystal Hotel and the Kennedy School are on the list to be reopened. The Grand Lodge in Forest Grove is also on that list, as is the Olympic Club in Centralia and the Elks Temple in Tacoma. Never been to the Elks Temple in Tacoma. The company will institute social distancing measures at the hotels. Stay safe and good luck out there, everybody. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. A reminder that X-Ray FM is offering free radio spots to businesses and organizations in need from the coronavirus. Just send a note to the local at xray.fm. You can even just shout out some good news. Here's Emily Gilliland with What's Next. Thanks, Jefferson. First up, a focus on the houseless services ballot measure in the metro region. We're joined by Metro Councilor Juan Carlos Gonzalez to learn more. Let's talk about the houseless. Let's talk about the homeless initiative. When did this first come across your desk? When did you realize, you know what, maybe Metro won't just like run trash and, you know, govern the zoo, but we're actually going to get in the housing business? Well, I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a great question. Uh, my desk, it definitely came in at the, at the start of my term, which was in uh, early 2019. But Metro had been working on, on housing initiatives long before that. Um, starting in 2010 with some of long-term regional planning kind of tools and outsets and things like that. And of course, in, in 2018, we took a, an affordable housing bond measure to voters and that measure passed. But that measure was always about building the, building the units, right? Putting, putting, up, the, putting up the homes. Uh, and then this measure, which started really convening a, a community, a, a group of community, really started convening around early 2018, around the time that the housing bond measure was, was getting finalized, the framework was getting finalized for the ballot. And uh, I think for a lot of folks, this has been uh, a part of the plan for a very long time. And I think that it's a response of the depth of the crisis, the desire of voters to see a solution and just the timing in general. Uh, there's a lot of momentum around housing issues around the country. Lots of momentum. And then what was the process to get to here? You're cutting out a little bit. Yes, absolutely. Uh, here together, the coalition of over 150 community members has worked pretty diligently on creating a framework uh, that has been vetted with multiple stakeholders throughout the region. I mean, we had the three county chairs uh, come to Metro and ask us to put this on the ballot a few months ago, a few weeks ago. Uh, and, you know, quite frankly, this process was, was, was new to me uh, because Metro wasn't the, the agency owning the entire, you know, planning process from the beginning. But for me, it's something that I, I'm fairly proud of, honestly, because you know, at a time when people are, you know, hungry, desperate for solutions around homelessness, we are able to find a way to be nimble and responsive. And I feel like people criticize government a lot for being reactive or being slow 
et cetera. And uh, I think we just honestly recognize that we need to do something about this crisis and this measure. This measure had all the right elements for us to carry it forward. Were you surprised by the Oregonians' endorsement of a no position on Measure 26210? Uh, honestly, I'm not very surprised by <laughs> the Oregonians uh, these days. They, they did not support our parks and bond our parks and nature bond renewal last year and cited some reasons that just felt really in my opinion out of touch and i think you know when the voters resoundingly passed the measure in each county um which which is like never really been seen before in terms of those numbers in washington and clackamas county paired with multnomah county um I just, I just don't know. Um, I, again, I feel really confident about the measure. Uh, I, I did a city club debate on Friday, and I spoke about how I truly feel like it was built to withstand the economy. And, and this might be one of your questions uh, coming up, but you know, the, the two tax mechanisms, the high income earners tax and and the business profits tax, it really, you know, it, it, it's a tax that that ask those that are doing the best that are doing well economically in this region you know to pay for supportive housing to help get people off the streets to help people stay housed if you're not doing well you're not going to be paying this tax if you're a huge company and you're not making a profit here you're not going to pay this tax uh but for those that do and for those households that earn over thousand dollars a year i mean it's it's for me it's it's I feel really comfortable with that. What's the most valuable kind of service that this is going to fund? You already said it. It's, this is not for building stuff. Those are capital projects. That's what we did in yeah. 2018. This is for service services. What are the most valuable kind of services so people can understand the sort of stuff the money is going to be spending on? Yeah, and uh, you know, one of our one of our biggest criticisms on the measure has been that you know the the opposition will say that. Uh, we have no idea where the money is going, and that's far from the truth. Um, well, one thing that I learned when I became an elected official, especially having you know, the opportunity to be a lot more hands-on with policy around homelessness and housing, unlike I, I had before, was that you know, homelessness is really caused by so many different variables. There's no single thing that you can point at and you know, kind of you know, come out of the argument with a with a silver bullet to say that you have the cure all be all for for something like this. So in reality, you know, the the service funds you know, quite a different uh, set of of services. And I think I mentioned them a, a little earlier. And we let me, let me make sure I find the, the list here. You know the the measure would fund services in in areas like case management, mental health care, addiction and recovery treatment, job training. So it sounds like it's mostly personnel. This is hiring primarily personnel, people to work with, social workers, et cetera, to work with people experiencing experiencing homelessness to to help them figure out their next step. Absolutely. You know, this is just about, you know, people that need that help, that need that support when, you know, when they they ask for the help to make sure that it's there. And I think for too long, the help hasn't been there. And um, that's just, there's, there's, when you learn about how the system really works, it's really frustrating, and uh, this measure is about really opening up channels of help that have never really been seen before. I would say in the country, 
I mean, per capita, this is one of the largest investments that any region has ever made for context, for context. And I think this is really important. In Los Angeles, and, and just a few years ago, they passed a pretty historic uh, service levy that was you know, similar in framework, et cetera, for $300 million a year. And that made national headlines. But you know, how much bigger is Los Angeles than us? And uh, you know, we're stepping up with the resources to meet the to meet the crisis right now. Whereas you know, Los Angeles knew that it was a, a, a drop in the bucket, but a, a, a step in the right direction. You know, we we really had the the kind of leadership here, the kind of vision for us to say we don't want to you know be like other regions and on the West Coast or around the country that haven't done enough when when they were growing at the rate that we're growing and we see the writing on the walls in the future and we're going to do something right now Juan Carlos Gonzalez thank you so much for this I do think it is important an important conversation and step in at least this I'll pass forward a conversation I had with former former mayor it was actually when Mm -hmm. Sam Adams was mayor and he said you know it was a time when there were a bunch of protests on the steps of City Hall because, you know, there's all these folks who are protesting here and that's totally okay, you know. But they ought to be protesting Washington County because Portland, the city of Portland is spending a lot and the county of Multnomah is spending a lot on housing and on homeless services. Mm-hmm. But in, but Washington County isn't spending as much and they aren't carrying their freight. And it does seem like the focus on Metro has some justification so it isn't all funded by Portland. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. You know, this is homelessness is a systemic issue that knows no boundaries. And uh, Clackamas County and Washington County rightfully recognize that they need to be part of the solution. And um, and that's exactly what this measure is all about. Juan Carlos Gonzalez, thanks so much for the time. It was really nice getting a chance to chat. Yeah, maybe we'll have to grab coffee one of these days, when, you know, in a few months. That'd be nice, man. Hope you're health. Hope you're healthy. Hope you're safe. All right, thank you, Jefferson. I really appreciate it. The last two episodes, we have focused in on District 33. Today, we introduce you to our final candidate. Saren Bussell, candidate for Oregon House District 33, sits down with Jefferson Smith to share her vision for the region, why she's running for House District 33. Portland's District 33 covers everything from the Pearl District out to Bethany. So the same representative for almost 18, for almost 20 years, almost two decades. Now there is a new face, Saren Bustle, running as a Democrat for District 33, one of a bunch of legislative races, including legislative primaries that are up right now, and we're going to try to cover all of them. Saren Bustle, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me. Who are you and why are you running? Well, as you mentioned, I'm Saren Bustle. I'm a geologist. I'm a dog mom. I'm a union member, and I'm running for House District 33, as you mentioned. And I am running because, frankly, I'm pretty angry. I'm angry at our leaders at the state level for not putting racial justice and social justice first in everything that they do, and I think we need to change that. Mitch Greenlick has been in office since 2002. What's the state of play with the race? So there are currently four people who have filed to run, and uh, I'm one of those four. And we're all, you know, giving it a good go and fundraising and door knocking. And I'm excited about talking to voters in Northwest Portland and talking to them about campaign finance reform and health care and housing for all and climate justice. In a Democratic primary, there's a lot of stuff that's 
kind of unanimous, right? I mean, there's ain't, ain't gonna be nobody who says, you know, what we really need in Northwest Portland a bunch more guns. It's, it's sort of unlike, you know, what we really need is to make sure we, uh, we we need we need to bring back conversion therapy, right? These are not, you know, right. these are not the issues. Uh, there is an issue of how one differentiates themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone can do that with name familiarity. Someone can do that with greater fundraising. Someone they can do with more vigorous campaigning. You some and sometimes you can do that on positions, on way things you right. bring. Where do you think, as you now see some of the candidates, where do you think some of the differentials lie among the candidates? Yeah, I think you're right. I think a lot of folks will notice a lot of similarities with us in terms of our educational backgrounds or professional backgrounds or experience working in policy. But for myself, I think my position is that I am the furthest left, most progressive candidate. I'm a member of the Democratic Socialists of America. And, um, you know, I believe in things like making sure that uh, sex work is legalized, that we decriminalize drug use, that we reform our prison system. And, you know, I want to make sure that we get money out of politics, because I think when we break it down, it's a racial justice issue. We know that communities of color have had less historically less um, access to intergenerational wealth and community wealth. And we need to make sure that those barriers are taken down so that people can access government and run for office. And when people are in office, they are supported to be there with a living wage salary. Let's talk about campaign finance reform uh, for a moment. Obviously, you, you just triggered me. Uh, the uh, Our current mayor is taking large contributions. Our, to back up a little bit from there, our city, with 87% of the mm-hmm. 87.4 maybe percent of the vote, voted to limit contributions in city council races right. uh, to a significantly lower level. And the mayor said, ah, well, because the similar thing, because the court said that uh, Anson Scalia's opinion of freedom of speech includes money and therefore it should be unlimited. I don't need to abide by this. What would you say to the mayor? Do you think the mayor made the right decision to, you know, take five and ten grand checks or, or what would you have to say to him? That is a good question. I, well, personally, uh, I have taken a pledge since my kickoff on October 1st to only accept contributions of up to $500 from individuals and from PACs, and I'm not taking any corporate PAC money, because I do believe that the voters have spoken, both in the city of Portland and in Multnomah County, that we should be getting money out of politics. And also, I'm also the on the commission, the Portland and Open and Accountable Elections Commission, which is the program to have public financing of elections for mayor, city councilor, and auditor positions in Portland. And I believe if the mayor wants to uh, live values about getting money out of politics, and he also believes in making sure that those barriers are lowered for folks, then he should abide by those limits as well. And I got to say, I was disappointed by the auditor's decision. And um, I, I do believe that we should be abiding by those $500 contribution limits. Pearl District. Bethany, what's the reaction in the Pearl District to a DSA member running for the state house? <laughs> when you go door to door and say, hey, what, you know, what comes to the reaction? Yeah. And by the way, Dad, you got questions. Feel free to chime in. Pop's with us as well. <laughs> He's in the other studio. Hello. So, so I um, I get the sense. Well, first of all, I believe that overall, our whether we're talking to school board members or city councilors or county commissioners or folks at the state level, I think we are underestimating how liberal the electorate is. And so when I'm talking to folks on the doors and I tell them that I want to smash the patriarchy and overturn systems of oppression and tax the rich, people are like, yeah, right on. <laughs> Not away. 
<laughs> so yeah, all from the Oregon legislature. That's <laughs> the Oregon. I guess the Oregon legislature is you know smashing the patriarchy. It's actually now run essentially by uh, run by a, a women leadership team. Have you found any difference betwixt you and the other candidates on the issue of campaign finance? That's a good question. Um, we haven't. No one's taken any kind of sure. personal, you know, uh, publicly stated pledge or. You're you the know. only one. Who's, you're the <laughs> as, only one who's self-limiting uh, your contributions. As far as I know, I I just want to be clear. I have not asked the other candidates to take a pledge. Whatever they, you know, because we are in a state of unlimited campaign contributions. I think everyone has to do what's personally right for them because that is what the law says. There aren't limits in place. Those are the self-imposed limits that I've chosen to take. And I have not asked them specifically if there's other limitations that they're accepting. Talking to Saren Bustle, candidate for House District 33 in Portland. Uh, Saren, if you were going to name the three, you can give me a different, you know, give us a different number if you want. If you're going to name the three biggest things that are going to be facing the legislature. And I don't mean, I don't mean Tina Kotek's three biggest priorities okay. for which she already has 32 votes counted. That's not what I mean. <laughs> right. I mean the stuff where Democrats might care about and also might disagree. Mm. Okay. What do you think the three biggest things the legislature is going to be facing? Well, what I would like them to be facing is progressive revenue reform. I think that our state really needs to look at all the 350 plus tax credits that are on the books. And those are primarily going to wealthy corporations and individuals and going through them one by one and making sure that those resources go back to the general fund for things like education and housing and mental health care and public transportation. So I would like them to look at progressive revenue reform. Um, I would also like them to look at campaign finance reform because those are two things that are capitalism, public, you know, financing of elections, how people have access to elections, um, they are kind of tied together. And so making sure that we not only have public financing of elections, but also lower the overall amount of money in politics, I think is critically important. So I'd like them to look at that because that affects who is in the legislature and who is representing us. Um, so those to me are very core issues. I know that Obviously, housing is on the legislature's agenda, which is great. Um, and what's the next housing change. move? Forgive, I mean, a step on the climate change yeah, no, line. But no what, do you think, what do you think is the next move on housing? Oh my goodness! Well, I'm I'm hopeful that we get more funding for affordable housing. I personally, it is such a. I wish so. I was thinking about this issue a lot um, because. I think that people kind of want a quick answer to housing, and we yeah, know please, that in ten words or less, <laughs> right? So there's there's housing affordability for folks who want to be able to buy houses, and and how do we get access to that wealth? And there's also renters' issues and renter protections and rent stabilization. There's the houselessness issue and all the root causes of houselessness, from you know from a huge health care health bill to mental illness and addiction treatment that's needed and, and trauma and domestic violence. And there's so many root causes to all of the housing, quote unquote, issues across the state. And I think we need to look at each of them individual and what their root causes are and also how to fund them appropriately because people need those services across the states and state and we need to pay for it. This might just amplify or it may prod you to say more just got a text in can you address the homeless issue what i knew what new ideas do you bring to this problem end quote <laughs> so i think we need to take a compassionate empathetic approach when it comes to houselessness 
again, there's not one root cause to houselessness, but I do know, and from folks that I've talked to at Street Roots or, um, you know, with, with various service providers, that people need permanent housing. People need permanent housing, they need affordable housing, and then they need the wraparound services like job training and healthcare and addiction treatment and recovery services and, and, and great educate, great schools. So we need to support each other and our community and invest in community so that we end the, oh, and end the cycle of houseless, criminalizing houselessness. I mean, I talk to folks who consider themselves to be fiscal conservatives, and there's nothing fiscally conservative about spending four times as much money to cycle people in and out of the prison system where they don't receive the health care and mental health care that they need. It's not restorative. It's not just people need to be in affordable housing with wraparound services so that they can live happy, healthy, thriving lives. Let's talk just a little bit about the campaign. How much money at $500 a pop, the one candidate in this race at this point who's announced a public mm-hmm. limitation to your own fundraising, mm-hmm. who's trying to listen to what the voters of the county and city did. The, what are you hoping, excuse me, what, what do you, what, how much money at $500 a pop or, you know, $25 a pop do you think you'll be able to raise? What's your, what's your fundraising My goal, target? my fundraising goal is $85,000. Yeah. And it means I just have to call, you know, you do, you do the math, <laughs> that many more people to hit that fundraising goal. And, and of course, I'm reaching out to various unions and organizations that have PACs to ask for their endorsement and support. And, Honestly, you know, to me, yes, money is important for getting your name out there, but just the basics apply, you know, having a having a campaign manager, having a treasurer, being able to buy walk literature and lawn signs, but mostly getting out there on the doors and talking to people face to face and finding out what issues people care about in the district. That's the most important thing to me. How many votes ballpark do you think it takes to win? Is it going to take to win that district? Oh, I'm not going to tell you that because that's Um, part of (laughs) (laughs) That's your secret sauce. I'm going to find out. How many we could look? I mean, how many yeah, votes you, would Mitch you get? Can, uh, you can look. You can look. Um, you know, that's well, that's a that's a tough question to answer because he was he never running, had an opponent, exactly, but, it would still, but so, I could still divide that in half. Yeah, but I'm running against four people. Yeah. Basically, I've tried to just inflate the amount of doors and folks I need to talk to. How so many that. people? In the, how many voters in the district? Can you okay, tell us okay, that? Just I can give people an idea of the scope. Well, would you please share your campaign plan on the air? <laughs> no, I'm not going that far. But what's the? How many voters in the district? So in. In, for Democratic voters, because this is a Democratic primary, yeah. so sorry, everyone else, please register to vote as a Democrat if you'd like to participate in our closed primary system, which, by the way, I support open primaries, so that's on the record now. Um, and uh, so there are about 21,000 Democratic voters in the district. The district comprises, as you've mentioned, some of Multnomah County and some of Washington County, and about 12,000 Democrats in Washington County, 9,000 so so in Multnomah got, County. Oh, nine, wait, wait, 12,000? 12, 12 in Washington, 9. So 21,000. Correct, correct. Okay. So if you got 10,000 in, in, mm-hmm. in a crowded field, you're guaranteed to win. Right. And if you got 5,000, you're at least credible. Right. And then, the, so you then the your quick, magical you answer is math. somewhere in between. Mm-hmm. There. All right. That's helpful. <laughs> what do you feel about a baseball stadium at Lloyd Center? At Lloyd Center? I thought yeah. it was being proposed over in Northwest. Yeah, as, as opposed to on the river? I, I think it's... Well, the last conversation, last conversations I've had with people in the know say it can't really happen there because on the river because of transportation. Okay. Uh, like, how do you get there? I, I'm not, you know, and, but you, but it would work at Lloyd Center. But you, you could, if you want to say down on the, down on the north waterfront, that's fine too. I mean, as I, I, 
as far as you know sports or anything i i don't i have no opinion about sports go um for me it could be a baseball stadium stadium it could be a large industrial hemp growing operation to That's me the other option. <laughs> right to me what we're getting at is um what kind of public financing what kind of public funds are going into these uh, operations um, are they getting subsidies are they getting tax breaks and is that is or are we paying for you know millionaires and billionaires to accumulate even more wealth and so Which I think it comes back in to favor of public <laughs> I think yeah and I think it comes back to also you know what's good for workers what's good for our what's good for is it going to provide good jobs um, and also I, I mean I really want to limit the amount of tax breaks that go to folks that will then just get enriched themselves so we have to be care- we have to be careful and I think if you talk to folks at the AFL-CIO you know they will be able to inform more about how those negotiations took place. They definitely want the jobs, and we have to support working families, but I, we really need to be careful. I'm not a fan of um, giving tax breaks and tax subsidies to basically make sure that... And what, and what, if we pull, what if we pulled a Green Bay and they had the baseball team leagues belong of, to the city? Th- th- that's what we should do. The leagues have banned it ever since Green Bay did it. Uh, it's now against the rules. Because I once... Well, I it's against the rule in the NFL. Is it against the rule in I the MLB? All, I think all three sports is against the rules. Oh, okay. uh, anything I should have asked you that I didn't, Sarah Bustle? I don't think so, but I'll just put a plug in. I'm the board chair for the Craig Law Center. They're an environmental legal aid nonprofit that um, was working towards making sure Nestle wasn't able to bottle public water in the gorge. They've been working on the Juliana versus U.S. climate case, and they're a great organization, and I'm proud to be on their board. Well, Saren, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks to Juan Carlos, and thanks to Saren for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown in about 30 minutes. Do please rate and review the podcast. If you got story ideas, send us a note, the local at xray.fm. If you wanted, you could even send us a voice recording of the story idea. We might even be able to use it. We can be together while we're apart. Talk to you tomorrow. In the meantime, stay home, stay connected, and thank you, democracy. X-Ray.